Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I am Lawrence Katsaris, the Technical Support Manager at Metagenics, and I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Hyla Cass. Dr. Cass is an acclaimed pioneer in the fields of functional medicine and integrative psychiatry and holds over 30 years of experience. As a daughter of a general practitioner, Dr. Cass learned from an early age about the role of the physician and the importance of the relationship between the patient and the practitioner to promote health. Being ever curious and perceptive, she noticed how diet affected mental health and this was an observation that kick-started her journey into functional medicine. A noted public speaker and author of several books, Dr. Cass is passionate about uncovering the root cause of depression and other mood disorders in her patients. In this episode, Dr. Cass explains her functional medicine approach and the steps she takes to reveal the drivers of these conditions, such as blood sugar imbalances or hormonal disturbances. Dr. Cass gives her opinions on antidepressant medications and conventional treatment strategies for addiction before delving into some of the natural medicines that she utilizes in her clinic. Dr. Cass's individual treatment plans nicely illustrate what the functional medicine approach to psychiatry should look like and the true health-promoting effects that can be achieved by truly treating the patient. Thank you very much for joining me, Hyla. Pleasure to be here. You are one of the esteemed functional medicine practitioners. You've been involved with you know, pioneering functional medicine from the start. Would you mind giving us a little bit of your background and your journey up until this point? Sure. Um, I'm originally from Toronto, and that's where I went to medical school. And I probably had a little bit of medical training before that because my dad was a doctor who practiced out of the house. So it gave me some first-hand exposure to patients, to how a practice looks, to how patients look before they came in and how they left looking a lot more relieved. And I got to see healing in action. And I think that kind of set the tone for what I saw as the role of the physician. So it was very much relational, social, uh, not just um, theoretical or clinical, as it were. And, and then when I was in medical school, I was also always very interested to know what was behind everything. I think that's just my nature, to explore more deeply, and didn't really take things at face value. I appreciated what I learned in medical school, but I was always looking further. And I think that's why I went into psychiatry, because that is uh, looking at what makes people tick. Uh, and even then, when I was taking a sort of more psychodynamically oriented um, program in Los Angeles, uh, at the time we weren't as heavily medicating as we subsequently, psychiatrists, became. Uh, because I had the psychodynamic approach, uh, I wasn't um, I, may I say brainwashed, <laughs> as many psychiatrists are, about the, the medication is the only way. And I really used my powers of observation. Just as I was observing psychodynamics, how people's behavior was affected by their, um, by their background, by their experience, I also began to notice how diet affected people's mental stat status. And that led me to do dietary interventions with people. And one thing led to another. Somewhere along the line, uh, I was exposed to Dr. Abram Hoffer, the father of orthomolecular psychiatry, and a little later to Dr. Jeffrey Bland, 
and uh, adore both of them. Uh, the, uh, Hoffer's no longer with us, Dr. Hoffer, but uh, he was one of my heroes and mentors. And Jeff Bland is uh, still a big hero of mine. Still very much going strong. Yeah. So that background of really interested in the patient primarily first instead of the condition and asking the why, you know, why are they presenting yeah, yeah. here? What's, what is going on? It's like with a car looking under the hood. Well, you don't call it a hood here, do you? The, the bonnet. Bonnet. Okay, <laughs> that's like English. Okay, so that's how I see. That's how I see what I do. I'm looking underneath the obvious, and that'll take you a long way. That there's no cut and dried way of looking at a patient. It's really getting the best history possible, and uh, doing lab testing when appropriate and treating accordingly, and everyone's different. There's no real cookbook way of doing it. So how do you go about finding out who that patient is? Like, is there a bit of a structure towards, you know, you've alluded to sort of case history and testing. Is there a little bit of a, a bit of a formula that you use to really identify what's driving why that patient's presenting in the first place? Yeah, before people come in, I do have them fill out a questionnaire, and that saves me time, and it gets them to uh, be oriented in how I'm thinking. So they're not just coming to, say, a, a regular psychiatrist um, or a psychotherapist. They're coming to someone who's actually going to look at uh, what they're eating, what, what their responses to certain foods are, their exercise patterns, their medical history, their family medical history and so on. And that already gives me a very good start as to what I may be looking at. Um, looking at clusters of symptoms. Do I have a cluster that looks like blood sugar dysregulation? Do I have something here that looks like toxicity? Uh, and that will then inform what lab testing I'm gonna do. Is there particular testing that you prefer to use? Do you work with any specific functional markers or do you work with general pathology? I do. First of all, I'll do, a, a, there's a panel that I do that I actually presented that's basically you know, CBC chemistry, CRP homocysteine, an array of hormones including thyroid, TSH, free T3, free T4, probably antithyroid antibodies if I have any indication that that's needed. Uh, reverse T3 if that's needed, you know, estrogen, progesterone, DHEA, um, CRP, I think I mentioned that, yeah. and um, I'm probably leaving something out. This is just off the top of my head. Yeah. But then there are the functional tests. I, I may do an organic acid urine test. Uh, I may do a either Genova Nutrival or Metametrics ion panel, which will also reveal uh, gut issues, heavy metal issues, levels of essential fatty acids, and that again will direct even further testing uh, if, if I'm gonna go in that direction or at least some beginnings of a treatment plan. Okay, fantastic. So we're really looking at hormonal profiles, um, inflammatory profiles, functional profiles. Yeah. And with pulling that back to just sort of taking a step back for a moment, are there classic drivers that you see presenting in psychiatric conditions? Like inflammation's come up a lot of late, oxidative stress, gut tends to be... Gut. Yeah. Gut's huge. I mean, I don't know that we can treat the brain without treating the gut. It's so apparent. 
you know, 95% of the serotonin is made in, in the gut. Now, the whole thing about serotonin, and, and is that the real driving factor in depression, is a whole other issue. Uh, but serotonin is a complex issue. It's not just serotonin. There are many serotonin receptors. Uh, it has a complex role. So it's not a matter of, okay, you're depressed. Let's Instead of using uh, an SSRI, let's use 5-HTP, although it's very, very useful. And tryptophan is very useful. Uh, and they may not be doing what we think they're doing. And actually, I don't care. <laughs> what I really care is, is the patient getting better? Is what I'm doing, is that my intervention making a positive difference? And um, of course, I do like to know the science. But uh, that's secondary to, is the patient improving? It's funny how sometimes we can get a little bit caught up in the reductionistic approach of it and just trying to target a particular molecule or a particular mm -hmm. pathway and forgetting that it actually belongs to a dynamic living human being that's presenting in front of us who's, yeah. who's who we're trying to treat in the first place. Yeah, and it, it's kind of funny too that we think we na we've nailed it like, oh, methylation, it's, it's a methylation issue. Um, and yes, it could be a methylation issue, but what do we know? We know, we know some of the basic some of the d basic genes, you know, 677, 1298, but so what? Because you may have, you may be homozygous for those, but there may be some other pathways that are actually, genes and pathways that are actually compensating for that. So we, we know a little, and sometimes knowing a little is, is a little dangerous. Certainly. And so I don't let myself be too, um, taking it all like it's in stone, um, because it's, there are many, many things going on. It's, a, it's systems. And that's what I love about what I do and what we're all doing. And that is we're working with systems. It's functional medicine. It's not, um, it's not linear. Oh, you have depression. Let's give you an SSRI. Oh, that SSRI isn't working. Let's do an um, SNRI. Let's add in something else. Let's add, add in um, an antipsychotic neuroleptic. Uh, it's not like that. It's how are the systems interaction, how interacting, how are the hormones interacting with the neurotransmitters, interacting with the gut, how's the gut flora affecting the brain, um, causing inflammation. Um, if you're having, if you're exposed, you know, toxic exposure, heavy metals, um, solvents, that's going to affect the brain. And now if you're, if you're suffering from depression as a result of heavy metals or solvent exposure, the SSRIs are not going to do very much. Um, we actually don't know how they work. So maybe they do something. They, they may mitigate some of the inflammation. We don't know. But they're not curative. They're not helping to clear out those toxins. And so our job as functional medicine practitioners is let's clear out the heavy metals. Let's cl clear out the, t the, the volatile um, hydrocarbons, the solvents, whatever is in there, and repair. So let's, let's get rid of the bad stuff, repair the brain, repair the body, re-regulate uh, with lifestyle, nutrients, um, social interaction, whatever, all the things that we need. It's really that basic premise of holistic naturopathic medicine, really, where it's, it's about creating balance again. And, maybe removing what's causing the excess or restoring what's causing the depletion. And as you've alluded to, 
just trying to work on a, a single pathway with a medication that works on one particular neurochemi- neurochemical, certainly, but w- probably isn't offering the answer, which is what we see yeah. in the studies. Right, we it's really an orchestra. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we need to kind of create harmony through that orchestra. We're trying to game. tune the orchestra and not focus on one instrument. Yeah, and then which would just causes imbalance. So with regards to that, I guess that's where the antidepressant medication is really focusing on, is it's just focusing on the one particular instrument in that orchestra and trying to make that play louder to make, make the rest of the harmony sound better. You're, you have a very clear focus about where you see or maybe where you don't see the role of antidepressants. Would you mind explaining that a little bit further? Yeah, I find the the whole idea of antidepressants really um, basically marketing. And they're they're there because they're financially rewarding to to the pharmaceutical industry and everyone else who is benefiting along the way. um, Least, of least benefit is to the end user most benefit is to the shareholders in the pharmaceutical industry. And um, that's not the way medicine ought to be practiced. It, sh- it should not be for the profit of something that isn't necessarily working. You know, you read uh, Irving Kirsch, you read Robert Whitaker, you read the research about the antidepressants are largely placebo effect. Now, they may have some effect in major depression, but shouldn't be given long-term because it, when they're given long-term, they create brain changes that are very hard to reverse. Uh, what we also know is that in countries where people are allowed to go through their, or cultures, cultures and countries where people are allowed to go through their depressions, through their psychotic episodes, uh, whatever their mental illness is, when they're allowed to go through it in a, a support, being supported by the community, um, likely not with medication, uh, they come through the other side and they are actually better afterwards and can live healthy lives. They may relapse at some point, but they're far less likely to relapse than people who have been put on the medications because the medications cause these brain changes and the person is not normal after that. And they don't have the resilience that they had. They don't have the quality of life that they had. They may not be able to ever really work adequately or have the good relationships that they might otherwise have had if they had been allowed to go through the um, problem that they went through with some support. I mean, you don't just abandon them. You support them. You support them with psychotherapy. Um, with medication if needed, I, I never think it's needed, but uh, I say support with nutrition, with using, see, when, when we have a, a depression or psychotic episode, whatever it is, it's a symptom. It's not a, it's not a condition in stone. It's a symptom that something's out of balance. So, you know, someone falls off a ladder, the way to treat it isn't to put them back on the ladder. It's you, you treat what's, what's not working. So, um, when, I don't know if that's a great analogy, but anyway. <laughs> if someone is suffering from depression or psychosis, what is going on? What's creating that imbalance? Is it deficiency, toxicity, infection? Um, on and on. You know, I mean, we know the usual list. So that's, what, that's all it is. It's a symptom. And it's up to us as the physician, as a practitioner, to figure out what's going on and correct it. That's but- our job. 
For sure, for sure. And really, I heard a nice saying uh, yesterday by Dr. David Raquel where said, what is a symptom if it's not the body saying that it needs a change? Yeah, like, hey, help, help. Something's out of balance here. It's like a discordance in the orchestra. And uh, bringing really back to that whole taking a step back, look at the why, what's wrong in the orchestration there of the body, what's out of balance. Mm -hmm. So from what you're saying there is do you ever see a place where antidepressants have a purpose? You know, maybe is it just acutely in an individual? Maybe acutely and maybe in in, in more severe depressions. That's what the data is showing if I want to be data-based. Yeah. But maybe perhaps long term, just giving that pill and expecting that that's going to work, and without that support, without that nutritional intervention, without that addressment, no, it doesn't work. It's not curative. Mm. What we're, we're we're aiming for is cure. Uh, now, this, the interesting thing is when we talk about cure, if somebody has a genetic propensity for, say, a methylation defect, or um, they don't detoxify well, they're always going to need a certain amount of nutritional support. You know, look at um, Roger Williams, who coined the term biochemical individuality. So that individual with those genetics needs that particular amount of, say, antioxidants or um, methylfolate or whatever it is that they, that they need, and they may need that for life, but that's going to control their condition. So um, have you cured them? Uh, you, you can't cure your genes, but you can certainly treat genetic expression epigenetics and that's what we do and that's that's our job our job as functional medicine practitioners with regards to genetics one thing that is certainly in the forefront of a lot of practitioners minds is methylation defects and Mm -hmm. testing for mthfr polymorphisms is that something that you see has a place or is it again just another tool to access information but it's not necessarily it's a great tool it's a great tool and often when i've had people with recalcitrant anxiety depression and so on when uh, a methylated product is added you know methylfolate um, methyl b12 whatever uh, they do actually improve and it's it's quite remarkable uh, but there's there's more complexity to that. There can be overmethylation. Um, it can interfere with other pathways. So uh, it's it's a big education. It's a big learning curve mm. to really um, cover this adequately. And we don't know enough. We still don't know nearly enough. Uh, you know, so many genes and which are the ones that are really important for mental health. And what's, how does it all cross over with everything else? So we, we have a little piece of the elephant, and we're saying, oh, this is the elephant. Uh, we do the best we can. And so I, I'm, I'm contradicting myself a bit because I'm also saying, yeah, the methylated products actually work in many people, but it's not the whole answer. And it, sometimes it's just empirical. You try it exactly. carefully, cautiously. Keeping it in mind and seeing what's working in the patient, but not necessarily thinking that it's it's the complete answer right so with regards to other specific nutritional interventions that you like to use are there particular ingredients that you find are usually quite effective in say mood disorders like depression anxiety well it's going to depend on what the source is uh very often there's a hormonal imbalance adrenal problems i mean when people present with depression what they really have is an adrenal is adrenal fatigue and they need uh, support of the adrenals, say with um, adrenal extracts or adaptogens. 
Um, they may have a thyroid problem, but that may be related to the adrenal issue. And I test for thyroid issues. And often treating the thyroid will really make a tremendous difference in their mood and energy. So, and, and you can give thyroid hormone, you can give the ingredients, sometimes it's iodine they need or tyrosine, you know, the raw materials to make thyroid hormone. Uh, sometimes it's selenium, so they're converting T4 to T3. Uh, so you, there's so many things that we need to know. Um, so I can't even say I have like, oh, this is my favorite, you know, like, oh, this is my favorite product. No, because it's, it's going to be what works for that particular individual. Exactly. Why? why they've got that particular symptom in the first place. Sure. You know, that depression yeah. could arise from a million different causes. Yeah, yeah. No, no one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So we, we explore and we treat accordingly and we keep trying and adjusting and that's where the partnership comes in. I don't say to, to a patient, oh, I know what's wrong with you. Here, take, here's this prescription. You know, take this, this adaptogen and this um, B vitamin and a multivitamin. I don't... I say take these because that's what I'm thinking right for you. And I may do some muscle testing as well to confirm what I'm thinking and some lab testing. I said, but in the meantime, between now and when your labs come back, let's be in touch. We're emailing pretty consistently. Uh, I don't want somebody to come back in a month and say, oh, I was just miserable. No, call me, tell me. You're not supposed to be miserable. <laughs> <laughs> you came to me because you were not doing well. So tell me what's working, what's not working, and we'll fine-tune it. And that's what I do in between. That's the partnership. Because I'm not just giving them a prescription saying goodbye, see you in a month. I'm saying here's a prescription, and we are going to fine-tune it and make it so that it'll work for you. And that's certainly, I guess, where we offer as functional practitioners in, in engaging and getting to know the patient. Yeah, or having, having a staff that does it. Um, the way I work, I, I, I tend to do it myself, but you can have a health coach, nutritionist, or some staff member who works closely to follow up with people. I think that's such a really good idea. Yeah, great. Now, something else that you've spent a lot of time in your career looking at and working with is addictions. Mm -hmm. Would you mind running us through some of your findings of addictions and, and you know, mm -hmm. how you view this? Well, it's kind of interesting that how addiction is being treated for the most part. The addiction treatment centers are very expensive and they are basically revolving doors and they're almost set up that way with the expectation of, oh, of course they'll relapse, you know, they'll relapse a few times till they really kind of get it or maybe they'll never get it. And um, the facilities in terms of the, their business model often don't really care. I mean, they're, they're in it for the money. I have to say, I mean, that, that sounds very um, jaded, and people may be really offended by my saying this, but I've seen this. Uh, and this is not the staff. I mean, I find staff at addiction treatment centers very dedicated and caring, but often the business model behind it is one where, mm, not so bad if it's a revolving door. Um, let's not get them too better. So what is the, to stop that revolving door from happening, what do you think is Well, you have to treat it. You have to, you have to treat the addiction. Mm -hmm. You have to treat the root of the addiction. If you're just doing psychosocial intervention and white-knuckling it, um, willpower, seeing it as a moral weakness or just a social weakness, it's not going to work because there's biochemistry. And the magic of this is that when you correct the biochemical imbalance, that whole imbalance that's 
craving the addictive substance shifts because people are just wanting to feel better. And if they feel better, if they're eating sugar, drinking alcohol, um, shooting heroin, snorting coke, whatever it is, that's what makes them feel better. If they can feel better by having a balance of their nutritional status and their brain isn't out of balance and they don't have um, a dopamine deficiency, they're, it's just so much easier to do the psychosocial intervention, to educate them, to do psychotherapy. I mean, it's just a world that makes a world of difference. You still want to do that because they've, they've had a lifestyle that may be very um, geared toward the whole addictive um, social setup. Their friends are all using and you know, the, all of that. Uh, on the other hand, we also get people who are addicted, say opiate addicts, that are, it's the iatrogenic, and they're not out in the street scoring pills. They, these are opiate addicts that were caused by being on um, medication because of pain prescribed, say, after surgery, after whatever, and they just kept on it, and now they want to get off it, and they can't. So those, when you use a, an intervention that's nutritional and biochemical, it's so much easier. And lately, um, I've been referring people for intravenous NAD, which is, I don't know if you're, you have it here in Australia. Very, very useful. It's, um, it's a derivative of, of B3, of, of niacin. Yep. And it's uh, usually a 10-day protocol. And it um, tends to be expensive. But after 10 days, they really are feeling much better. They're not craving. And it has uh, done mitochondrial repair. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, it's shown some really promising results. And yeah. using those nutrients to help correct that, I guess, neurochemical imbalance, I guess, gets mm -hmm. the patients to a point where they can perhaps make more balanced decisions. Or exactly, exactly. So that they can actually think for themselves. Um, what I did was I, I actually, um, I wrote a book called The Addicted Brain and How to Break Free because I was trying to get to people who are addicted and their families to help them understand you don't have to feel guilty about it. It's not, you're not morally weak. You're not bad, you're not stupid. You have probably a genetic predisposition or it could be also induced by stress which changes their genetic expression and makes them addicted. Um, and then we can break the addiction by rebalancing. So outside of dopamine, I know dopamine gets a lot of discussion when it comes to addiction, but you've also looked at the role of glutamate in addiction as well, haven't you? I have. It's, it's all related. Um, and what I'm, what I'm doing is giving... Well, what, what, I think what you're thinking of is gl I'm using glutamine. Or, no, it's, it's just, I or the glutamate. the excessive, the excessive signaling of glutamate causing yeah. you know, neuroexcitability and toxicity in the brain. Right. So, but I haven't, it's not, hasn't been particularly my focus. Mm -hmm. But since you mentioned that, I was just thinking about glutamine as being one of the little magical products that I like to tell people about. Open up a capsule of glutamine, put it under your tongue, 500 or 1,000 milligrams, and the craving goes away. Okay. So that's a nice little And tip. you're using that, you know, Acutely, whenever there's cravings, or do you look at yeah, whenever yeah, well, it, I do it regularly in in dosing. You know, I've put together some products that actually contain glutamine, so they're getting 500 milligrams BID twice a day. But I also say at, 
for, for those moments where you gotta have it. Open up a capsule, if you can remember. Open it up, stick it under your tongue, have them handy. And it, it's quite, quite interesting. It's like, whoa, what happened to them? What happened? And it, it kind of leaves their mind. The whole gotta have it suddenly is like, oh. It's like when you distract a little kid, like kids having a tantrum, and, and you, just, you distract them. It's like all of a sudden what seemed like the worst thing in the world, it's like it disappears. Yeah, great. And I have to ask, since talking about glutamate and glutamine, a lot of people can sometimes be concerned, oh, I don't want to give glutamine in case it's going to convert to excess glutamate. Is mm-hmm. that something that you see? Is that Occasionally, not that often. Okay. But I also give, you know, this is the GABA glutamine glutamate pathway. It's individual and you just watch for it. I mean, I, I don't do particularly biochemical testing to see, oh, is that going to happen? But you get to see if, if, if it's excitatory, we, we don't use it. So if you're seeing a worsening of symptoms with glutamine yeah. administration, then obviously pull it back. Again, yeah. kind of really keeping the patient in the forefront and looking at their changes that's taking place. Do what works and don't do what doesn't work. <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's always It's, it's being practical. Um, what do you think about, I mean, you've talked about, about with regards to addiction, substance abuse, and addictive substances, do you see the same role being played in the neurobiology for non-substance abuse? Like you know, we, now there's a lot of hype around technology, shopping. Oh, the same thing. Addiction. Yeah, yeah. It, because it all is that dopamine click. We get the dopamine um, high. You know, it's a release of dopamine and whoa, and it's more complicated. I'm sure it's more complicated. That's not like a single gene and a single neurotransmitter. But we do get that, you know, the ping of an email or um, people that are addicted to, um, to gaming, gambling, whatever it is. But interestingly, for, there's some uh, nutrients such as NAC, uh, and acetylcysteine that have been very useful for the behavioral kinds of addictions as well as the physical addictions or chemical addictions. Yeah, NAC has shown fantastic results in terms of addictions right through to sort of OCD. Uh, is there a yeah. particular dosage that you like to use of NAC? Well, usually like 3,000, you build up to 3,000 milligrams or three grams a day, so it's a gram uh, three times a day. Okay, great. Are there any other particular core nutrients that you like to use when it comes to addictions? Well, yeah, because of because it's a dopamine issue, uh, give tyrosine, phenylalanine, uh, and the B vitamin cofactors. And sometimes there's a methylation issue. I'll use methylated form um, of the B vitamins. Zinc, something that you use as well frequently. Zinc, or? sure. I mean, people are so nutritionally deficient, and I said they just want to feel good, so they use what makes them feel good, which is, um, you know, some sort of substance or activity that's an abuse. Um, so when it's rather than being a favorite, it's like what works for that person. Obviously, the serotonin is an issue for many people, so 5-HTP or L-tryptophan will work. Um, there's a compulsiveness, obsessive compulsiveness about addiction. And we know that that's a serotonin issue. So we'll add in some either tryptophan or 5-hydroxytryptophan. And some people do better with one and some with the other. Is there an indication, like a clinical sign of symptoms of when you'd see someone might do better on one than the other? You try one and if it doesn't work, you try the other. (laughs) 
And what sort of dosing do you look at on, on each of those? Well, with, with um, 5-HTP, I'll start at 100. Some people start at 50. I, I just start at 100. Yep. <laughs> you know, 100 at bedtime. And then for some people, it's a little activating, so I say take it earlier in the day mm-hmm. and take tryptophan at night because that tends to be more calming in many people. It, again, an individual, it's individual. Um, up to like looking to take 300 a day of 5-HTP, uh, 400 even, uh, built up gradually. And with tryptophan, it's five times that. It's just a five to one. So start with say, with 500 of tryptophan or, or um, move up to 1,000. 1500 2000 up to say 3000 okay great and with your 5 htp keeping that away from food as well um well it's interesting that tryptophan needs to be taken with a bit of carb to get it across the blood brain barrier 5 htp not so much and then the question is should you take it away from food yeah tryptophan should be taken away from the from other foods because the other amino acids will interfere with it so you take it away from other foods, but with a bit of carb. With a, I'm sorry, away from other protein foods, mm. other proteins, because the other proteins will compete, but with a little bit of carb, yeah. complex carbohydrate. Part of the issue with addiction is also getting people off of medications to which they have become addicted. Uh, sadly, what happens is the body develops tolerance. They require a higher dose. Um, they can't get off the medication. They're not very comfortable on the medication, but they can't get off it because as soon as they start to lower the dose, they're feeling very, very uncomfortable. Anxiety, depression, agitation, uh, really bad agitation, insomnia. Um, you know, this, this could even move into suicide and violence. So it, it's quite, quite serious. And this keeps serious. them stuck. It keeps them stuck. And the, the doctors are saying, see, you need to be on it forever. And that's just not true, that's a myth. They have to be on it forever because the doctors don't know how to take them off it. So um, along come us who do know how to do this, and that is you clean up the lifestyle, you start to restore some of the ability of the body to work the way it was meant to, giving the right foods, exercise, diet, meditation, stress reduction, and begin to very slowly withdraw the medication. You can do it gradually in increments, start off with a 25% decrease or even a 10% decrease um, every couple of weeks or it could be longer. And support that with the same supplements that I would be using for addiction. And I cover this a little in my Addicted Brain and How to Break Free book as well. Uh, So it's not that different. The substances of abuse uh, are similar to the substances that are prescribed except the abuse is on, it comes from the person wielding the prescription pad. So, so with, the, with regards to those subs, uh, the ingredients, what particular ingredients is it that you all specifically like to work with to help when that patient's making that transition off antidepressants? Uh, it's, it's individual, but uh, the essential fatty acids are important. That helps with brain saps. People have these electric shocks. And when they're on essential fatty acid, that really helps to, with the myelin sheath, and it, it really mitigates um, those very uncomfortable feelings. Um, neurotransmitter precursors, depending on which drug they're getting off of. So um, tyrosine, phenylalanine, tryptophan, 5-HTP. 
Uh, saffron is really good for both dealing with the side effects of withdrawal and for balancing the brain and, and preventing. Um, it's a good anti natural antidepressant. So that's uh, saffron. Um, with regards to saffron, have you seen the studies or have you used turmeric alongside? I see this. Yeah, and so that was my next thing, that turmeric is very, very useful because it's anti-inflammatory. And so much of what's going on in the brain, both with um, the original issue and then the result of being on medication for a long time, there's brain inflammation. And taking turmeric really does help. And so the combination of turmeric and saffron, I think, is brilliant. Yeah, and they show some definitely promising results. And I think the beauty is that there's not that potential of interaction with the medication. But with the mm. ingredients like 5-HTP... Yeah, there is there is the, the threat of, of uh, or the possibility of serotonin syndrome. So I say take it at least two hours away. Mm -hmm. But the truth the truth is, I it, it's pretty rare to have serotonin syndrome from that combination. However, you must warn people about it. That's, you know, the official word. Certainly being aware of the symptoms as the practitioner and letting the, the patient Letting the patient know, yeah. Definitely. Um, just revisiting something that you said, which is something that I see in clinic a lot, is that fear that the patient has. You know, people will reduce their antidepressant medication mm -hmm. and they start to feel symptoms come back and so they see that as a justification that firstly the medication must have well, been that's what they've been told yeah and then they they get scared and mm -hmm. uh, when you're treating with these patients they're often on medications for you know decades mm -hmm. but yet they're still depressed but then they're mm -hmm. afraid to come off the medication of course yeah so how do you how do you work with that carefully okay carefully gradually with a lot of support they're in charge they're in charge of their withdrawal and they don't do anything that is not a, is not comfortable for them and it's keeping their eye on the end vision, which is being medication-free uh, or on as low a dose as possible. And I always say that. I'm not, I'm not promising I'm going to take you off it completely. We're going to get you on the lowest possible dose, and that makes them feel better because it's not like I'm taking away their security blanket. You don't want to take away people's security blanket if that's what they've relied on for so many years, even though they see it as something that they'd rather be not involved with. Um, it's kind of a love-hate relationship that they have with their medication. So the more comfortable they become on and with nutrients and lifestyle, the easier it is for them to even consider giving up that security blanket. And that sort of crush. And it works. It, I mean, it's, 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 again, it's the interaction, it's trust, it's uh, building that mutual relationship. So as you're building that relationship, I'm assuming that you'd start doing that and building that rapport with the patient and then would you start to work with the more rounded therapies like diet and lifestyle get that patient to a point where they've mm -hmm. got that additional support and then start to look at decreasing the medications or how do you mm -hmm. yeah it's easier that? that way to get them actually cleaned up first mm -hmm. because when you start to decrease the medication uh, when you when your body is still toxic it's it's harder and I know this is always a hard question to answer, but ballpark-wise, would that be something that might take several months or maybe even longer? Or I think several months to a year. Yep. But usually, I don't know, six months. And then you might get them to the point where they're solid enough where you can start to look at decreasing their medications. Oh, I see what you're saying, how long it takes to get their lifestyle set first. Yeah, before I thought you, you meant start. Oh, getting off of the medication. No, sorry, before you oh, start decreasing yeah, the medication. Maybe a month. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, not a big deal. Yep. But just get them s sort of comfortable, stabilized. 
uh, comfortable with saying being gluten-free, dairy-free. You don't have to put in a whole bunch of changes at once. It's, it's hard. Mm. You know, so change the diet, uh, lifestyle, um, social support, and then, then you in, in introduce some nutrients. Then you start to withdraw the medication. Yep. So just sort of taking a step back and getting more into the sort of drivers and, and pathophysiology, I guess. There's been a lot of discussion recently where they talk about how in depression another why as to why this may be happening is that you get structural changes taking place in the brain and that these chemical messengers are, are becoming abnormal and imbalanced because of the greater problem, you know, inflammation, oxidative stress. And where do you see the role existing here with regards to, say, 5-HTP, obviously supporting serotonin levels? Is that still a bit of a band-aid treatment or is it doing it's interesting more? so what is it doing because mm. if if we're not if we're not buying into the monoamino monoamine hypothesis mm. um why does well why does that work is it placebo effect i don't think so i think it is a messenger uh, you know, serotonin does work in in the synapses or you'd say synapses i guess <laughs> um i catch on see um but, you know, it's also empirical because we know that it does work. And we're, we're discovering more and more all the time. And um, I'm gradually incorporating more and more um, concepts and, and, and different nutrients, different approaches. Uh, we didn't used to know about the gut-brain connection. Now I'm definitely doing a gut workup on people. So... I. It just that it's just how it flows, and sometimes you know we're using something and we think we're using it for one reason, and then research later shows that it was for a totally other reason, but it works. So again, people are suffering, and we have to do what works, and be expedient, and deal with the why of it uh, as well as we can. But it's not going to be it's not going to prevent me from doing what I know empirically does work. Which I guess is very different to antidepressants because while you know, 5-HTP might be supporting uh, you know, largely serotonin production, it's still not producing, as you sort of said before, that with antidepressant medications, you're looking at long-term, cons like acute side effects, potentially mm -hmm. long-term consequences. Serious, so. serious uh, acute side effects, withdrawal effects, uh, down-regulation of the receptor sites, which is a real problem. You're really causing serious brain changes. So you're getting the benefits without, you know, some of the side effects, and potentially you're getting better benefits using sort of the natural yeah. focus. So you mentioned the, the gut-brain axis, and I think to sort of step beyond nutritional and supplemental interventions, what are your primary interventions that you like to work with in terms of dietary and lifestyle? Do you have particular diets that you find to be effective or particular dietary triggers? Depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. I mean, I basically, I think the gluten and dairy issue is a big one. And gluten is almost always inflammatory because of how it's, um, how it's grown, how it's prepared. Um, it, may not be G, it may not be a GMO product, but it's certainly sprayed. Um, you're getting a lot of junk when you're eating gluten, and it's irritable to the gut. And it causes leaky gut. And when you have leaky gut, you have leaky brain. And people stopping gluten end up doing much, much better. 
uh, dairy as well, partly because people may be genetically predisposed that way, can look at people's genetics and see if they're actually likely to be dairy sensitive or gluten sensitive. But it's also, you know, what is the dairy that people are eating? It's, is it the kind of over-processed milk that we have? I mean, well, who would want to drink that anyway? You know, pretty it devoid of nutrition and over-processed. And it starts to really change away from the original food. It's, it not, really it's not a food. And besides, it's not a food for humans. It's a food for cows mm. or calves. <laughs> so, you know, gluten and dairy minimizing these, do you be... Do you look at blood sugary regularities, making sure there's enough protein? Are these kind of common elements that you might All see? the common stuff, absolutely, yeah. I mean, sugar, sugar's a big one. Our whole culture is built on sugar because the food industry, just like the tobacco industry and its addiction to tobacco when they put the more addictive substances in the, in the tobacco, it's the same thing with sugar. I mean, with sugar in baby formula. It's just disgusting. It's disgusting, Disgusting. Yeah. So... We need to get people off of sugar. It's highly dysregulating, carcinogenic. It's everything bad. And what happens is we've uh, given people sugar from a very early age, and they're trained to be responsive to sugar. So it's a whole detraining or untraining to to get people to re-regulate and begin to taste their food again and to move into a more organic whole food kind of diet, and then uh, then there are the people who are who feel that being vegetarian or, or vegan is the way to go, when in fact for their uh, particular physiology, biochemistry, genetics, it's not the best thing for them. Um, I mean, some people go by blood type, whatever it is. Um, I, I, I've seen people who were not doing well as vegans or vegetarians and did much better when they incorporated animal products, but it had to be, say, grass-fed, pastured beef. And, uh, you know, good, healthy, healthy animal products. Really healthy, so, balanced eating. It's not really that there is the perfect diet, but there's the right diet. There's the right the diet for the right person, yeah. yeah. Definitely. And lifestyle interventions, do you advocate the implementation of exercise programs or meditation, relaxation? Is there any particular focus that you have? I don't have a particular one. People tend to find their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, For some people, yoga is really good because it incorporates movement and meditation and breathing and a way of focusing on oneself and one's body. So, uh, yeah, for everyone, there is the whole idea of exercise, of diet, of stress reduction. I mean, stress has so um, great an effect on the brain, on the hippocampus, on brain inflammation, that, uh, cortisol. We have to do something about it. And what's nice is I can let people know that they actually do have some control about what happens up there. It's not simply, hey, the doc's going to give you a prescription for a, for a drug, and that's going to make you better. It's not going to make you better. It's going to make you worse. Um, not only that, but you hold the key. I mean, the neurotransmitters, who's making the neurotransmitters? We're making the neurotransmitters in our own head, in our own brain, in our own body, in our own gut. So what, I, what I'm saying we as practitioners do is we help the body do it better. We supply the raw materials. We uh, help the person to 
um, live in a way that we were meant to live. We were meant to move. We were meant to eat foods that were natural so that the information carrying capacity of the food could be utilized. So we, and we need to de-stress. I mean, we, we can't be living in this crazy stressed um, soup. You know, we're living in a cortisol soup. Not good, not healthy. So when this is explained to people, when I can explain it to people, give them some ancillary reading, and, um, and I've included it, say, in my Eight Weeks to Vibrant Health book about the issues of stress and diet and uh, blood sugar and so on, um, they can understand it. And then they feel empowered to go on and take over and see how when they adapt a healthier lifestyle, they actually are feeling better. Nice. And I guess the ultimate question is a bit of a personal question here for you. What is, out of everything that you've just said there, where are your keys? What are your areas that you focus on in your own health to maintain sanity amongst this, you know, the craziness in this modern world? <laughs> I come to Australia and speak at conferences. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that we can help you. And meet wonderful people. <laughs> so personally, I, I, you know, I do all of that. You know, I work out. Um, I get into nature when I can. Um, certainly eat as well as I can. Uh, sometimes better than others, depending on where I am and what I'm doing. So I'm not always at home, I'm doing a lot of traveling and speaking. Makes it difficult, doesn't it? Um, yeah, well, it's, a, it's a challenge. I have to be more conscious than otherwise. But I, I'm often going to conferences such as this one, where it's wonderful, gluten-free, dairy-free, organic, not bad. Yeah, we try to look after everyone. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So. Look, Hala, I think you've articulated beautifully the complexity that's involved in treating all patients, especially patients with mood and psychiatric disorders, and it's about the why. You know, why are they at this position in their health um, mm -hmm. at this point in time? And that will be different for someone presenting with one symptom um, a million different ways compared to another patient mm -hmm. presenting with the same symptom. And I like the way that you really bring it back to finding what works for the patient and really putting the patient centre focus on, on treatment in terms of not getting caught up on a particular pathway or a particular nutrient or certainly not a particular drug. And unfortunately, perhaps the problems within the industry there where we're seeing the focus within media of foods and medications are unfortunately you know, shifting people away from their health. So thank you very much for your time. I think you've articulated the importance of diet and lifestyle and mm -hmm. general support to balance that person out really well. So thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.